my audiovisual technician here. The cat wouldn't let me out of the house with the red dot, so I didn't bring that today. So, <clears throat> Last week we were looking at uh, the first chapter in uh, the book of Judges. Just as a quick review, we saw that uh, Judah started well in obeying God. Um, following uh, God's commands, dealing with the Canaanites. But we also saw that um, there were some cracks starting to form. There were some weaknesses starting to take place. And um, that eventually towards the end, uh, uh, Judah was, was not fulfilling um, uh, the request of, of the Holy God. And so they were faltering in their faithfulness to God. And so we um, did see, on the other hand, uh, the faithful family of Caleb and Othniel, and we pray, Lord, that, uh, you know, that he continued to be the example. Uh, he fought the giants, and he cleared the land, and the land became prosperous. And, um, again, an example of... of uh, a family and, and a nation as well uh, that would follow the rules and uh, stipulations and statutes of God and then uh, be blessed by them. So this brings us to verse 22 of um, Judges. So if you haven't already turned there, uh, verse 22 of chapter 1. And again, what I want you to keep in mind here, <clears throat> the three-step approach, we have God's commands or promises, and we have man's response, either he obeys or disobeys, and then we have God's evaluation. So we've already been seeing that God said to clear the land of the Canaanites, and um, we see Judah's response and we're going to continue to see some of the response of the other tribes here today. And then uh, about halfway through the lesson today, we'll see God's evaluation and how he judges uh, what uh, these people did and how they followed his rules and commands and uh, statutes. So verse 22 <clears throat> Of, first, of, of chapter 1 of Judges. Likewise, the house of Joseph went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph spied out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luds, or Ludes. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the entrance to the city, and we will treat you kindly. So he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all of his family go free. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and named it Luds. 
which is the name to this day. Ordinarily, in the, in the families of the Jewish uh, culture, uh, the firstborn of the household receives both a um, rule over his brethren and he gets a double portion of the inheritance. But Jacob didn't do that. Jacob divided the blessings into two groups. He gave the leadership to Judah, and then he gave a double portion to Joseph. Actually, he gave it to Joseph's two sons that were born in Egypt, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. And that's kind of unusual to have uh, the division like that. Ordinarily, the rulers of either the either tribe of Ephraim or the tribe of Manasseh uh, is referred to in Scripture. But here is a bit unusual. We, it is referred to as the house of Joseph. Now, in this context, in the beginning, there are faithful actions taken by this group. They are there to follow God's commands. They're there to execute his statutes. And later on, there are failures by this group. So when they were doing what God commanded them, they were called the house of Joseph. And later, when they falter and they uh, fail in, in their uh, following of God's commands, they become known as Manasseh and Ephraim. And since <coughs> Ephraim and, and Manasseh received half of the uh, blessing, they received a double portion of the inheritance, they had a place of honor among the tri tribes and next to Judah, the uh, uh, leader of, of the clans. So in time, Ephraim became kind of resentful of Judah. And this became a problem throughout the history of the Israelites, this friction between Judah and Ephraim. And it runs throughout their history, and it begins here in the book of Judges. The city of Bethel is uh, referred to in verse 22. And we know from past lessons that when you have the E-L on the end of the word, it, it represents God. And so Bethel um, is interpreted as the house of God. And it was at this place where God appeared to Jacob. Now you remember the dream of, of the ladder coming down and the angels going up and down in, uh, in his vision. And uh, in effect, it was a vision of Jesus Christ, who is the mediator between a holy God and the sinful creatures, the true ladder that uh, bridged between the two. So Jacob built an altar there and had made Bethel his place of worship, according to Genesis 35.3. And later on, the tabernacle seems to have been placed at Bethel, at least to some, for some time, So in the conquest of Bethel, the house of Joseph used the same technique here that they used to conquer Jericho. 
they got assistance from somebody from inside the city. And I was interested in the phrase, in my interpretation here, he asked, please, can you tell me the entrance to the city? I'm sure the man was eager to help him because the reputation of Israel conquering uh, these uh, lands uh, probably preceded them. And this was probably the only possible way for this man to uh, survive or live is by helping them out. And so he did. And um, the interesting fact here is that uh, he left the land after the, uh, they conquered uh, the city. The, and this individual left the land and went to the land of the Hittites and started another city by the same name as Luz. And I think that shows the desire of this person to continue the uh, perverse, evil culture of the Canaanites in another place. This uh, evil spiritual culture continues elsewhere, though it was driven out of this part of of God's land, promised land. But this impact was a victory only in a limited limited, um, area. It wasn't throughout the whole land, just a specific geographical area. Nonetheless, it was a victory just the same for Joseph and uh, the the house of Joseph. The evil culture was no longer there, and God's people could pursue uh, his statutes and live in peace undisturbed. Notice I mentioned the evil spiritual culture of the Canaanites. Just a side note, uh, some of you are probably aware that a certain personality, TV personality, lost his job on Monday. And some people connect this to what he gave a speech over the weekend where he declared we live in an evil spiritual culture. And that didn't set too well with some people accordingly. But at least he identified, I think, just like... um, this time period with the Canaanites, that we are living in an evil spiritual culture. By way of contrast, God's new covenant entails the spreading of the gospel to every tribe and tongue on the world. So there is no place left for the pagans to go to or flee to as God's word spreads throughout the world. So when Jacob spent the night in the field outside of Lutz, God appeared to him. And Jacob believed that because God was there, this could be an access way to heaven. So Jacob stood alone. You can imagine this. The stars are all filled up there. And and he's standing out there alone in the darkness. And he's looking up into heaven. And God has uh, met with him. And... He declares that Bethel (coughs) will be the new name. It will be the house of the Lord, the house of God. Now, from a human standpoint, that's kind of uh, a crazy thing to do, because for centuries and centuries, 
that city was still called Luz. However, here Jacob's prophetic claim came true. The claim that he made by faith, it was brought to pass that this city was now changed from Luz to Bethel, just as Jacob had, had prophesied. Well, we continue on, and, and we're seeing now some of the failures start to take place of Manasseh and Ephraim. And so they move from being called the house of Joseph by their own names here. Verse 27. <clears throat> but Manasseh did not take possession of Bethshean and the, its villages, or Taranach and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Eblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megado and its villages. So the Canaanites persisted in living in that land. And it came about when Israel came, became strong that they put the Canaanites in forced labor. But they did not drive them out completely. Neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who were in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. So you can look up here on the map and you can see Ephraim in the green and Manasseh just above it. And uh, so now we're talking about the land in that location. And um, if you, I thought Makado was up there someplace, but yeah, it is at the very top of Manasseh. <laughs> so you can get an idea what areas we're talking about here. So again, as the house of Joseph is shown to be unfaithful, uh, they are called by the tribal names of Manasseh and Ephraim. We see here there are five cities uh, listed that were not conquered by Manasseh. Now, three of these cities were key in the book of Joshua, chapter 12, as to holding the power and control of certain lands. And so we see here that... Uh, the Canaanites continue to maintain power and control over some of the lands because of, they were not conquered or kicked out of these cities. So thus, the fact that these five cities are listed here uh, is designed to show us that the Canaanites maintain power. And similarly, Ephraim did not drive out all the Canaanites from its territory. The Canaanites were not cleared out of Gezer until the reign of Solomon. And Gezer dominated part of the central plains, and so again, the fact that it was not conquered resulted in this isolation. Again, we talked about Judah and Simeon being isolated from the rest of the tribes. And so when Ephraim did not clear out the Canaanites, again, we have this separation, this border uh, with the Canaanites in between the tribes, the two to the south and the rest to the north. In <clears throat> verse 19, uh, it kind of indicated that uh, Judah was at fault, and we see here now, having read this, that also um, Ephraim was also to blame for not clearing out um, the Canaanites. 
So we get here to the first big issue, which is compromising. We have three sets of compromises, and this is the first one. And this is <clears throat> where we start to see um, the people lose their faith, people not uh, following God's commands, uh, and they begin to compromise their faith. They begin to compromise uh, the word of God, and they will suffer the consequence of that. The first major compromise is that the Canaanites lived among the Israelites. They weren't supposed to do that. They were told to deal with the Canaanites. So during those times when Israel was strong, she reduced the Canaanites to slaves, but still did not obey God and drive them out. When you're talking about a whole group of people, it's like um, not just one or two people, but it's, it's uh, like dealing with a nation. So there was often times when one group would uh, take another group into slavery. There was this treaty or covenant established. It's kind of like the surrender of one army to another. Here are the terms of surrender. You have to agree to these things. Well, this is kind of what happens here uh, when the Canaanites became enslaved. There was this covenant between the Israelites and the Canaanites. There was this treaty that takes place between one group of people to the other. And again, we see this as a violation. This is a compromise of what God had instructed the Israelites to do. So we see here that in Exodus 23:32, they uh, were told not to make any treaties and not to make any covenants with the Canaanites. So we see their compromise here. Thus, we have here is almost certainly uh, not only a failure to follow God's commands, but a direct violation of them. Verse 30 of chapter 1. We begin to see that some of the other tribes follow suit with their compromise. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kiron or the inhabitants of Nahola. So the Canaanites lived among them and became subject to forced labor. Again, we have this covenant, this, this treaty between these groups uh, to be forced labor. So the first major failure for the Canaan, uh, is for the Canaanites to continue to live among the Israelites. And we've already seen this as a case of Manasseh and Ephraim. Here it's noted that Zebulun does it as well. Uh, in this section concerning the rest of the tribes, uh, dealing with Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, and, and Dan, the first three tribes are the northernmost. We have... Asher, Naphtali, and Dan. And I believe the author of Judges is trying to say to us, look, the sin took place from the top to the bottom of the promised land. And everything in between. We've already talked about Judah. Now we're referring to Asher, Naphtali, and Dan. And we've already mentioned Zebulun. And we've talked about Ephraim and Manasseh. The whole, all the tribes were failing to follow God's commands, all the people. It was complete, stretching from one end of the land to the other. 
So, <clears throat> verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Echo, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or Alab, or Aqzib, or Helba, or Aphek, or Rehab. So the tribe of Asher lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but lived among the Canaanites. The inhabitants of the land and the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became forced labor for them. So we've looked at the first compromise, allowing them to live among them. So here we start to see the second compromise take place, uh, the children of Israel to dwell among the Canaanites. And here apparently it is the Canaanites who dominate. And even though they were sometimes reduced to forced labor, it seems to be the Canaanites dominating. And so this is the second uh, compromise of God's word. Seven cities are listed that Asher did not conquer. And so things are getting worse because there was only five cities listed under Manasseh. The, the same degree of compromise or failure is noted regarding Naphtali and the two cities are singled out for special mention here. The city of Beth Shemesh, which means house of the sun god, Shemesh. And Beth Anath means house of the fertility goddess Anath. In other words, these two cities were centers of the idolatrous cults, the Canaanite religion. God had specifically told Israel to tear down all the altars of the Canaanites back in Exodus 34:13. So we see here from this commands being obeyed <laughs> was not being obeyed. The Israelites lived among these idolatrous centers. They actually lived in these cities rather than tear them down. So we see that is the second compromise. Verse 34. Then the Amorites pressed the sons of Dan into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the valley. Yet the Amorites persisted perished in living in Mount Ayers, I'm sorry, persisted in living in Mount Ayers, in Ajalon, and Shahalabim, and had been in the hand of the house of Joseph, grew strong, they became forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akizabim, uh, from Selah, and upward. So here we see the third major compromise taking place. And it concerns the tribe of Dan. Instead of Israel driving out the Canaanites, we see here in these verses that it was the Canaanites that were driving out the children of God. Judges 18 records the migration of, these, of this tribe and shows that the religious apostasy as to why they had the inability to, to conquer the Canaanites 
And so when we get to 18, it'll be a rehash of what, uh, what I just read here. I think the author of the book of Judges wants us to show just how things were getting worse and worse and worse. Not only here in this section, but also through the whole book of Judges as a whole. He postpones the story of the Danite migration until the end of the book because it gets worse and worse. So we read concerning Judah that they were able to conquer the hill country but could not take the plains. And we talked about iron's charity of iron and things like that last week, but they basically had no faith. Um, they lost their faith to believe that God could help them conquer it. But here in verse 35 it says to note that the Canaanites, some of you may have Amorites, which is a subgroup of the, the Canaanites, persisted in the region of Ajalon and Mount Hears. Anybody recognize what Mount Hears was historically? Had something to do with Joshua? This was where Joshua made the sun stand still while he defeated them. So what we have here is that Joshua had defeated them once with the power of God holding the sun in position. But we're reading here now that the Canaanites have reclaimed it. It's also where Joshua is buried. So what a sad statement this is that Joshua, his grave, this is where he had great victory, and now the Canaanites have recaptured it. And those two memorial sites of the Israelites have been taken back by their enemy. Since Dan left this area, <clears throat> the land became under the influence of Ephraim. And when Ephraim is strong, again, remember, they're called the house of Joseph. And he acquires some degree of domination over the Amorites. So finally, in verse 36, we come to the terrible end of this second section of this narrative, the response of man. We are told that the Amorites had a border. That is where they were so strong that they had a defined border, a defined territory. It wasn't that they were guerrilla warfare hiding amongst the Israelites, attacking here and there. They actually had a defined land. They were not hiding out in the territory. They had their own land and their own recognized border. So we see how we went from great hope to three major compromises uh, with God's word and God's commands. So this brings us to the evaluation of the Lord. God's command, man's response. Now we're going to evaluate, God's going to evaluate uh, the man, the, the people of Israel, as to how they followed his commands. So chapter 2, starting verse 1. 
Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bashem, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your father, fathers, and said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land, and you shall tear down their altars. But you have not hearkened to my voice. What is this that you have done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become a thorn in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. And it came about when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all of the sons of Israel, that the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they named that place Basham, which means weepers, and there they sacrificed to the Lord. So <clears throat> this first section of Judges is, is kind of like what I wanted to uh, say in uh, the introduction to the book. We have here a pattern. We have creation, we have fall, we have decline, we have judgment, and then recreation. And so here in this first chapter, we have a, a kind of a small picture of that taking place. It is the angel of the Lord who brings the word of evaluation to Israel. Let's turn over to Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23 and verse 20 to 23. So we have the angel bringing God's judgment. And here's, um, here's the reason why. Uh, uh, it goes back to this section of Exodus. Behold, I am going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place which I have prepared. Be attentive to him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, and he will not pardon your rebellion, since my name is in him. But if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will be before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. You shall not... Okay, well, I'll end it right there. Through 23. So we have here in Exodus, God telling him, I'm going to send this angel before you. Listen to him. Listen to his, uh, what he's saying. And um, be aware that he has my power, he has my uh, approval, uh, whatever he does. So this uh, angel was specifically charged with bringing the people into the promised land. This angel was charged with, uh, charged the people to obey him. God charged the people to obey him. It was the angel who was to be feared. It was the angel who would be, go before Israel to destroy the adversaries. 
And it was the angel who stood as captain of the Lord's host back in Joshua, uh, chapter 5, verse 13. So now we see in, in terms of this that the Exodus 23:21 had foretold that this angel would pass judgment against the sinful nation of Israel. So it's clear that this angel is God himself, uh, since he has the power to forgive sins. He says he has the power, but only God can have power to forgive sins. And since he has the very name of God upon him, in verse 21 of Exodus 23, and since no man has ever seen God the Father at the time and lived, it it, uh, I believe then that it were, what we're seeing here is a pre-incarnate uh, Jesus Christ as this angel. It is he who brings the judgment to Israel, just as he will bring judgment on the final day. Any thoughts on that statement? It's just my personal belief based on what I've read here, so... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. How they get separate? Separated from. Oh, uh, the two sections of Dan? Yeah, yeah I, I, haven't, uh, I haven't figured that out yet either. I'd have to go back to Joshua probably and see how he divided up the, the, the land. Because in Joshua, he, he tells what territory each tribe will have. Okay. So when we say that the angel came from Gilgal to Basham, we are to understand that probably the tabernacle has moved around because we see here that they sacrificed to the Lord and that's done at the tabernacle. So Gilgal was where the covenant with God had been renewed when Israel first entered the land. Israel had started out well at Gilgal, but Gilgal is a long way off, spiritually speaking, from Bosham, which means weepers. We don't know exactly where uh, Bosham is located. It may be another a name for Shechem. It may be another name for Bethel. We don't know. At, at least I don't know. But at any rate, the fact that they sacrificed to the Lord at Bosham, Bo, uh, Bosham shows that the tabernacle was probably located there. And the Lord remains, reminds them that he delivered them from Egypt. He reminds them of that. So, you know, why would they think that he couldn't destroy the Canaanites? Their faith weakened. Their lack of trust weakened. He reminds them that he had made good on his promise to the forefathers to bring them into the promised land. Why did they think he was unwilling to finish carrying out his 
his promise to destroy the Canaanites before them. Again, a lack of faith, a lack of trust. He reminds them that he had sworn never to break his covenant with them. He was ready to deliver on the balance that he was ready to destroy Canaan and give it into their hands. But they broke the covenant. They lost the faith, lost the trust. Their part of the covenant was two parts, as we kind of said. First, that they were to make no covenants or treaties with the Canaanites by reducing them to slavery or by marrying them. Again, remember, marriage is a covenant. Second, they were not to permit the Canaanites' altars to remain standing. The word of the Lord then directly charges them with that sin. You have not obeyed me. They were guilty of keeping the Canaanites around as slaves under the terms of a covenant or or treaty and did not destroy their altars at their uh, shrine cities of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath. And then I think the biggest part of one of those five verses, the Lord asked them a question. What have you done? What have you done? I think God always treats men as responsible for their choices and their actions. And his questions are designed to provoke an internal self-examination. What have you done? Remember, Adam, where are you? God knew where he was. But he wanted Adam to think, you know, why am I hiding from God? Simon Peter, do you love me? These questions are to promote self-examination. So God is saying, what have you done? He wants them to think about repentance, and he wants them to think about the sins that they've committed. Now the Lord passes judgments in verse 3. In strict accord with his threat that he expressed earlier in Numbers 33:55 and in Joshua 23:13, the judgment is in line with the two charges that they violated. First, since the Canaanites are still in the land, they will be in your sides. And then most uh, interpreters added the word thorns. They'll be as thorns in your sides, uh, added by translators to make sense of this. Of that. So the first judgment has a number of um, implications. As a translator notes, the Canaanites will be thorns in the sides. However, this may be a prophetic statement as well. Uh, since Eve came from the side of Adam, the prediction could be here that the Israelites will intermarry with the Canaanites, which will lead to further problems, and sins. So that the Canaanites will be a a thorn in the side of Israel implies also that they're unequally yoked together, as 2 Corinthians 6.14 
you've got God's people marrying pagan people. Second, since the altars are still in the land, their gods will be a snare to you. Now, some of you are hunters. I've never used a snare, but a snare is, lies on the ground and waiting to catch a small bird or a small animal. And quite often it's associated with a heavy log or a rock to set the snare, to set the trap. So we have a picture here that would refer us to Genesis 3.15, where the enemy is said to have his head crushed while the righteous receives a wound in his foot. So if they cut their foot in the snare and this log or rock would come down, um, it would cause that wound to occur. It would be a snare. It would be, they would trip up, in other words. But along with these judgments, God offers mercy, as we'll see in chapter 3, verse 2. It's not just... <clears throat> He offers a way of, of, of judgment and offers a way of mercy together. So <clears throat> these judgments will eventually drive Israel to their knees and they will be seeking God's forgiveness. <clears throat> so in effect their sins are, are idolatry and adulterous uh, coveting, uh, the seeking other gods. Um, <clears throat> they recur as a core description of Israel's sin in Judges 3.6, which we'll get to. But these, these two uh, aspects of, of their sins is dealt with throughout the rest of the book of Judges. The snare of idolatry is particularly explored in the history of Gideon, which opens up with Baal worship and ends with ephod worship. And the snare of adultery is, of course, explored in the second part of uh, Samson and his life. So the book of Judges explores these realities of sin and how they affect the people of Israel. Okay. <clears throat> So what we find here in verses 4 and 5, total judgment is what we find. The Lord uh, does not soften the judgment at all, um, yet total judgment is what makes total grace possible. And we will see that here in verses 4 and 5. The response to this judgment is twofold. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith are really one action with two parts, a turning away from something and a turning to something. Israel wept and even named the location as, of their tears as Boshem, which means weepers. Here is repentance. Judgment has been declared. They accept that. They cry out, they repent. And then we are told that they sacrifice to the Lord. Here's their faith. On the altar they express their confession that they deserve the death penalty for their sins. 
and that he should rightly deserve God's wrath. But they also declared their trust in God by sacrificing a substitute, which would take upon itself the wrath that they deserved. So we see here that there is a grace for the sinners, despite their sins and imperfection, God's people have an altar of mercy and forgiveness to which they can run to, Jesus Christ. So when we cry out to God for forgiveness, repentance and faith, God's answer is always, yes, I forgive you. Any thoughts, comments, or questions? Brother Ken, would you close us in prayer then?